Hello, everybody. I'm Contessa Brewer in for Brian Sullivan. Right now on Last Call, deal fever strikes Hollywood. Two media giants may soon unite, and we have breaking developments. Micron on the move in a big way after hours. Why investors are cheering. Red Sea Turmoil, the first major companies, raised the red flag on supply disruptions. Dropping like flies, why the outlook is so bleak for so many tech startups. Plus, the thief who looted life savings with stolen iPhones. It's an eye-opening report you don't want to miss. And the final holiday shopping sprint is on. There's some actual price relief in a most unexpected place. We have a jam-packed hour in store. Last Call is up right now. Good evening to my friends on the East Coast and good afternoon out West. I'm Contessa Brewer. Let's dive right in. Is the Wall Street party over or just taking a little disco nap? Investors saw a color they haven't seen in more than a week, red. Stocks were heading toward another record day with the Dow set to hit a new closing high. But then 2.46 p.m., at least on the East Coast, and everything changed. Stocks took a sudden turn. The Dow closed down more than 400 points. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq fell more than a percent. It was the worst day for the major indices in two months. Today's sell-off effectively wipes out all the gains for the week, meaning all three indices are in danger of snapping a seven-week win streak. Curiously, interest rates also fell with stocks. The 10-year Treasury yield now sits below 3.9% for the first time since late July. So what happened? Are investors just profit-taking after a big run, or is the tide about to turn in favor of the bears? Joining us to slice and dice the details, Sandhill Global Advisors, Chief Investment Officer, CNBC contributor, Brenda Vingello, and Crossmark Global Investments Chief Market Strategist, Victoria Fernandez. It's great to see you both today. You know, Victoria, let's begin with you. How would you characterize what we saw happen that turnaround so swiftly into negative territory? Yeah, I mean, Contessa, look, we look at what we've seen with the markets over the last few weeks. We shouldn't be that surprised. You've got about half of the S&P that is over a 70 RSI reading, and that tells you that the market is stretched and overbought. You've got about 70% of the S&P at the end of last week that was making new uh, 20-day highs. So again, you look back over the last 50 years, that is the fifth largest day that we've seen that happen. So things are getting stretched out. And even reports coming out of the banks are saying equity positioning is really long and stretched. They're saying it's about 15% overweight in equities right now in clients' portfolios. So it's probably not surprising you take a pause or you have a little bit of a correction. The most surprising part, though, is what you mentioned at the beginning of the show is that yields came down. We were at a 391 this morning on the 10-year. We got down to a 384. To me, that's telling us that the market is concerned about the growth trajectory and what's been priced into the market, you wouldn't have the equity markets fall if the yield coming down was strictly because inflation is looking better and people are optimistic. So I think this sets us up 
for more days like this in the new year. You mentioned the RSI, the Relative Strength Index, which is about half of the S&P 500 hitting that mark, that really critical mark of 70, which would indicate uh, overbought conditions here. Brenda, is this just a brief pause where we stop, get our bearings, and that we're going right, to, right now, the future, we've seen the futures in after hours trading indicating that we may open in positive territory again tomorrow. I think this is likely just a brief pause, and I think it's expected after such a significant move in such a very short period of time. And when we look at what's driving the market, it's not only this broader participation, but even the mega cap tech names that drove so much performance earlier in the year have absolutely been participating. They might not be up as much as small cap uh, recently, but they've absolutely been participating. But I think if we look beneath the surface, there are still are lots of great ideas and lots of sectors that really have not um, participated as much where there still is opportunity. If we assume that the economy remains relatively strong, which it seems that way based on economic data that we've continued to get, um, and, uh, and valuation in, in many areas of the market is still relatively reasonable. So I think there's reason to believe uh, that the rally could continue, but I don't think that everything will likely participate as much as it has. You know, uh, meaning we, the mega cap we have, we've spent so much time talking about how the rally has broadened out past the mega caps, but you're pointing out here in your research that Amazon's up 27%, Salesforce up 32%, Microsoft up 13%, Apple up 17% since October 26th. So there is participation, not just from those that got left behind in the first nine months of this year, but in the mega caps as well. How does this, that set us up, do you think, Brenda, for 2024? Yeah, as I think, as we go into the new year, I think there will be a, a continued focus from investors looking for the next idea. Um, and when we look at where can we get the most uh, bang for our buck, I think if we're looking at an Apple um, or a Microsoft that have just continued to do incredibly well, and obviously the fundamentals are still good there, but I think the question is what comes next? So I do think that we could get a continuation of this participation from other parts of the market, uh, particularly in small and mid-cap stocks that really were very hard hit uh, with the prospect of rates moving higher. And now that we're past that point, we think we have seen peak rates. Uh, we think that those areas of the market could act a little bit better, especially if we go into the new year and we do start to see a pickup in capital markets and the IPO. We've seen some recent announcements about um, M&A activity. So I think all of that could be a positive for those small mid-cap parts the market that haven't participated as much. Uh, they have recently, very recently, but um, not over the longer term. You know, if, if and as we're saying on screen, the bull run hits a brakes, but maybe if it's just tapping the brakes a little bit and testing the conditions of the road out there, then what you're saying is more capital, more M&A gives a little fuel uh, to the tank. So in this case, where do you think that might happen? Where could we see um, certain sectors, Victoria, set to run in the new year? Yeah, well, I think it depends on your outlook, Contessa, right? So we don't have quite as rosy of an outlook. For us, we're thinking that there's a lot of risks out in this market, weakening household balance sheets, chance of a mild recession coming into play. Um, there's lots of elements that could be out there, including geopolitical events. And we don't think earnings are going to be as strong as what people are anticipating. So I think you have to look at some of the sectors that you think could hold their own. They have to have strong balance sheets. 
sheets. They have to be able um, to withstand some volatility in the market. So, I mean, we like some of the names that have been in healthcare. We like some of the financial names in terms of credit cards. Those have held up really well. And even though um, debt is rising on credit cards, the debt to disposable income for households is still staying somewhat steady. Um, so I think you can look around and find certain names within each sector that can do well, but it's going to come down to balance sheets. You know, it's interesting that you raise the specter of uh, recession again, because moments ago, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen actually published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, and she makes a serious sales pitch about the strength of the American economy. She says, look, the, we are looking to a new year. There have been challenges and risks. There's good reason to be optimistic about the path we're on rising real wages, declining inflation, strong labor market, our investments and other economic policies will continue to expand the country's productive capacity and pay dividends for middle-class Americans. And she says, while some forecasters predicted a 100% chance of recession this year, it just didn't happen. Now, as I said, this might be a, a pitch, especially to the middle class, but Brenda, do you agree with her assessment of where the economy is? I hope that her projection is what ultimately comes to pass. But I think if we look at where we're at today, certainly uh, the economy is a lot stronger than anybody anticipated it would be. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that most Americans are not feeling the pinch from higher interest rates because they refinance mortgages uh, near all-time lows. Uh, many people have retired in the baby boomer generation, and they're going to live out their retirement years like they had always planned to and have the savings to be able to do that. So there are a lot of uh, very unique things about this current economic cycle that we're in. And I think now as we look out to next year, and if we assume that, yes, maybe the Fed, the Fed will start lowering rates next year. So maybe there's not as much risk from that, those higher interest rates filtering through the broader economy. Although I'll say, uh, if, if inflation is coming down, real rates really won't come down very much. Uh, so I think we will start to see a little bit of an impact, uh, more than we have seen from higher rates as we move through next year. Uh, but I do think that the risk of recession has decreased significantly, and that uh, we just might find that uh, that we're able to sail through without without having a recession. All right, Next Brenda, year. Victoria, thank you both so much for joining me today. Let's take a look at today's studs and duds. The biggest winner in the S&P 500, CVS Health. It closed in the green amid what we just talked about, that chaotic trading day. Look at that up one and a third percent, and it's up three days in a row. But the biggest loser on the S&P 500 was FedEx, down more than 12 percent, worst day in more than a year. The drop after the package delivery giant cut its revenue outlook because of weaker demand. Up next, a blockbuster merger brews in Hollywood, and we have breaking developments. Plus, the saving grace for Micron that has investors cheering after hours. Stay with us. Well, we're getting a jump on Thursday with tomorrow's news tonight. The stories you and Wall Street will be talking about. Big news developing in the world of media. Paramount and Warner Brothers Discovery are reportedly in talks to merge. According to CNBC sources, Warner Brothers CEO David Zaslav and Paramount CEO Bob Backish met this week to discuss what a deal might look like. Shares of both companies are dipping after hours on the news, although Warner Brothers 
is down more, down 7% at this point. Joining me now, CNBC.com media reporter Alex Sherman, who was able to confirm that news, and New York Times columnist and CNBC contributor James Stewart. Alex, let me begin with you. What does, uh, what, what does Warner Brothers Discovery get out of a deal with Paramount? So Paramount has a lot of assets that fit very nicely with Warner Brothers Discovery. They have a broadcast network in, in CBS. Warner Brothers Discovery does not own a broadcast network. Uh, they have a, a fairly significant film studio, Paramount, that could be combined, assuming regulators allow it, with the Warner Brothers studio. And they have Paramount Plus, which has 60 million-plus subscribers that they can shift over to a larger streaming service. Ostensibly, they would shut down Paramount Plus and add that content and those subscribers over to their existing service, Max. The issue is that Paramount Global also comes with $15, million, $15 billion of debt. And Warner Brothers Discovery has just spent the past year trying to boost its own free cash flow to pay down its own debt. So the idea of putting these two companies together while a balance sheet would expand because the assets would expand, the debt would also expand. Uh, and that may prove to be problematic. But what we know today is at least the companies have started to talk about what a theoretical deal could look like. From Paramount Global's perspective, it's probable, I would say, that in terms of strategic companies, Warner Brothers Discovery would be the cleanest, most likely buyer. James, what do you think about the, the pressure on Paramount to make this deal rather than, I, I mean, it's clear why Paramount would want that, but, but then a, a company like Warner Brothers Discovery, or I don't know, our parent company, NBC Universal and Comcast, just letting Paramount, could it fold? And then another company goes in and picks up the pieces? Well, the, you know, the there's a lot to be said for a Warner's getting Paramount assets. All, all what Alex just said, I agree with. But scale has been all anybody is talking about in the streaming era. The whole idea is this is an economy of scale business. You've got to get more subscribers. Both Warner and, and its Max and Paramount Plus have seemed to run up against the ceiling. And this really does help to give them scale. Does it give them enough to compete with Disney, Apple, Netflix? That's an open question, but it certainly is a lot better than it was. Um, I also think the regulatory issues are not that bad, but there probably would be some pieces they would have to get rid of. I don't think the studios are an issue. They, they have surprisingly small market shares, Warner and Paramount. The, uh, the news operations, that could be uh, problematic, I think, for regulators. But, you know, there's been talk for some time that, that Warner might want to spin off or sell CNN. Um, and now they'd have CBS News instead. And you mentioned Comcast, NBC, you. They are the, the other obvious uh, partner for the, the Paramount assets. But the, they do have the problem of having NBC. And the regulators, I don't think, are going to let uh, two of the broadcast networks merge. Uh, in fact, Alex, you've just published another story about uh, the other players in here, including our parent company, NBC Universal. What does this mean in terms of talks for them at the table? Yeah, I think this is very much a strategic dance at this point. And to James's point, I don't see NBC Universal and Paramount Global being a fit. But it's possible that Warner Brothers Discovery and NBC Universal could be a fit. There would definitely need to be some divestitures there, I think. The same CNN problem exists with the news operation and MSNBC, of course, belonging to NBC Universal. It's possible CNN would have to be divested. As James just said, there are probably a litany of buyers for CNN. So maybe that 
is not that hard of a problem. The, the idea, I think, of these talks with Paramount Global from Warner Brothers Discovery's perspective is you get to draw out NBC Universal. You say, hey, look, it's time. The starting gun is off. We're thinking about this now. Are you guys in or are you out? Are you willing to just let Paramount Global and Warner Brothers Discovery come together? If you are, you may be left without a dance partner here. So it's time to show your cards. That's sort of the phase that we're in here for all three of these companies. Alex Sherman, thank you very much. James Stewart, great to see you. Thank you for your time. Nice to see you. Thank you. Meanwhile, another story that'll grab investor attention tomorrow. Micron shares are seeing a nice little pop after hours following earnings results. CNBC's Christina Partsinevelis joins us with more. What did they have in their report? They want everyone to know the recovery is underway. And they're actually at the very early stages of growth driven by generative AI. The company reported a top and bottom line beat. They gave strong Q2 guidance, improved gross margins, which, by the way, that street was looking for. But all of that has to do with higher selling prices for memory chips, which are only expected to climb in 2024 and not necessarily because of improved volume. Management even seeing on the earnings call that they aren't seeing volume growth in Q2 or Q3. They're currently, they just report. Q1. So it's all about higher prices. The big question is, why are prices climbing higher? Manufacturers have been cutting back on production to clear excess inventory and, of course, increase profitability. Demand is starting to improve specifically for generative AI models, which require more powerful memory, which is priced at a higher price point. So that means higher margins. And then traditionally, the end of the year is seasonally better for electronics. That bodes well for memory maker. Supply, though, could be an issue for customers. The CEO saying its memory supply growth for fiscal uh, 2024 will be well well below demand growth for memory chips driven driving prices even higher. Many, many reasons for this price uh, increase. And then you have the Midas touch of NVIDIA that continues. Micron CEO said it's in the final stages of qualifying its advanced high bandwidth memory chip for NVIDIA's next generation GPUs. But because of that high bandwidth, that means that their capital expenditures are going to increase in 2024 compared to last year. So did they talk specifically about smartphones? Because they got hit really hard over the last yeah. year. Yeah, so they, they brought up PCs and smartphones. And specifically for personal computers, they see uh, a low to mid-single-digit uh, mid growth. And something we heard from Intel and AMD as well. And that's because the, a lot of people bought their PCs in 2020. And so that everybody's talking about this refresh cycle that's going to come in 2024 next year. We've seen so much attention paid to NVIDIA, know, but AMD and, okay, all right, every okay, day. so you would like to turn the conversation beyond well, there, there NVIDIA? Are other AI plays, right? And so the obvious one for those that follow the AI market is Broadcom. Broadcom, that stock is just up 20% this month alone, and it's up, what is it, 99% year to date, and it's it makes even... AI chips for Google's AI platform. So it's not just NVIDIA. They make specific custom chips. They also work on Wi-Fi and connectivity. But there are, there are other companies like Arista Networks that works on the connection of how to connect the models together. So it's not just NVIDIA. Supply chain had started to smooth out. Are we starting to get more worries now because of the geopolitical situation in the, in the Middle East and, and in the and the Asia. Middle East wouldn't really affect what's going on with the supply. Most of the supply concern comes from Taiwan, right? And this is an ongoing problem. Oh, is it, you know, is China going to overtake TSMC Taiwan? The It seems like that's always on the back burner. It's not necessarily a big concern thus far. I think the bigger thing is, can we reshore into the United States? Or are we going to continue to have to be reliant? And that's the whole point of the CHIPS Act. But that's a whole other conversation that the CHIPS Act is focusing more on, like, the older chips, not necessarily the leading edge, which means that Taiwan is still leading there, which means we're still reliance on Taiwan, and the cycle continues. Christina, great to have you here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. A uh, quick programming note, be sure to catch Micron CEO Sanjay Marotra tomorrow morning on Squawk on the Street. 
Still ahead, the Red Sea crisis, as I just mentioned, is very real for some of the world's most well-known brands. Plus, if you think retail theft has gotten bad, wait until you see what's happening in the cargo industry. Stay with us. Welcome back to Last Call. I'm Contessa Brewer in tonight for Brian Sullivan. The fallout from the Red Sea shipping crisis is spreading. According to global logistics giant Cooney and Nagel, 121 vessels have now been rooted from the area, with cargo totaling roughly $80 billion in trade. A U.S.-led multinational task force has been created to secure the waters, but the shipping industry is still in the dark about its plans. Without a clear path forward, the industry is essentially flying blind, trying to plan around this disruption. IKEA is warning that the situation will result in delays and may impact some product availability. So which companies are currently most exposed to these supply chain delays? Let's ask that question of our next guest. It's Resilient President of Government, Aerospace Defense Division, Peter Guinto. Peter, good to talk to you today. Where should consumers expect to see delays and eventually added prices because of the Red Sea? Well, you already named IKEA, but there's other um, big companies that have announced publicly they're going to see impacts. Uh, companies like Abercrombie, companies like Electrolux, also BP, and then the shipping companies themselves like Maersk. Um, so for consumer goods, um, most, most consumer goods should be in a pretty good spot because of uh, inventories that are high for holiday shopping. Uh, but where the greatest concern is for those intermediate products and indirect cost inputs that go into things at a low tier, uh, that will flow into supply chains and create ripples that may last for weeks or months. Here's the way it was described to me by uh, a global insurance executive, that there is a region now that's basically off limits unless you want to pay between three times and ten times more for marine war insurance. Otherwise, these ships all have to go around the Cape of Good Hope in order to deliver their goods, which adds costs and roughly three weeks onto delivery time. So the cost will start to add up unless, you know, you're willing to and time is so important and the lives of the crew are so um, disposable that you're willing to risk being attacked in the Red Sea. How much pressure can the international community go in and bring to bear to try and calm the situation or are we likely to see things get worse before they get better? Um, so they are getting worse already, right? So just two days ago, it was only estimated to be about 55 ships were impacted, about 3% of the, the monthly total. Uh, and that number you mentioned already has already gone up more than double. So it is getting worse. Uh, you, you also mentioned the task force. So Operation Prosperity Guardian uh, is really a multinational agreement to do just what you said to get into the Red Sea and to make sure that uh, shipping routes are safe and that things can be moved uh, without danger to the crew. Uh, however, there are companies already, we have clients that are already uh, utilizing intermodal transport to make sure that the most critical and important goods make it there uh, with its, if it's not through the Red Sea or around the continent, like you mentioned, adds you know, two to three weeks and over 3,000 miles, which, which turns into increased cost. Oil is the big one. What region of the world is likely to feel the impact most as we're in the winter months, at least in the northern hemisphere? Sure. Uh, so Central Europe is already in, uh, in a position where their oil uh, reserves are compromised. So 
Traditionally, their number one supplier is Russia, with Russia's ongoing attack on the Ukraine. Uh, this, this creates a cascading impact where uh, fuels were already impacted, and it's just going to get worse there. I know that the Red Sea disruptions are taking a lot of the spotlight, but we know at our southern border that more than half a billion dollars in railroad freight is right now stuck at two major border crossings in Texas. That follows a U.S. Customs and Border Protection decision to halt rail operations at the locations because of a surge of migrants trying to get across. How serious is that situation for the domestic supply chain? So, again, it depends on how long it lasts. So um, there, if it's a matter of days, not weeks to get around the African continent, this, this could be a lesser concern. But there is a, a great deal of uh, goods that moves through the, the border. Um, El Paso alone, it's about $200 million worth of goods a day. Um, and in this area, the same concern is there. A lot of raw and intermediate goods, particularly chemicals and raw materials, move through that border. Uh, so again, these impacts can, uh, you know, create ripples in the supply chain, which could take weeks to, to unwind. Peter Guinto of Resolink, it's great of you to join us today. Thank you for sharing your expertise. Thanks for having me. Sticking with shipping and logistics, as the holiday season kicks into high gear, so do cargo thieves. CNBC's Courtney Reagan has the latest on the rising cargo theft and which items are targeted the most. Courtney? Contessa, there's debate about whether organized retail crime is increasing or just getting more media attention, but cargo theft is getting worse, expected to spike this week. When consumers are shopping, so are the bad guys. $144 million worth of cargo has been stolen this year, up from $55 million in 2018, according to Veris CargoNet. Travelers Insurance cargo theft expert Scott Cornell told me his knowledge goes back further than the data, and it's his assessment that cargo theft is at an all-time Time high. All the things that the supply chain has put in place over the last couple of decades to make itself faster, more efficient, easier to use are the same exact things that the cargo thieves are taking advantage of right now. Sophisticated criminals are stealing virtually entire trailers full of goods using digital job boards, posing as legitimate logistics companies, creating fictitious pickups, changing invoices and much more. They're doing it bigger and better and faster now and we have less violence. Sometimes though, it looks like this. A cargo thief cuts off the bolted lock from the back of a trailer, goes inside and puts large electronics boxes into a waiting car. This clip shows a thief cutting off the bolted lock from the back of a different trailer, looking over his shoulder, climbing inside the trailer and opening boxes inside. While six to seven years ago, the majority of stolen cargo ended up back in legitimate retail locations online or flea markets. Now Cornell says it's going overseas. So who books the loss for the cargo theft? Well, it depends where in the supply chain the goods are stolen and how the contracts are written citing responsibility. Usually it's not the retailers since they haven't taken possession of it when it's stolen. Contessa, back to you. Oh, Courtney, it's a real Grinch. Thank you. Coming up, why a no good, very bad year for tech startups could soon turn even worse. Stay with us. Welcome back to Last Call. For investors in big tech, it has been a very good year. Names like Meta, Amazon, Netflix, and Google have surged in 2023, and especially we've seen it over the last month even. But the small fry in tech have taken their blows and their kicks, and now they're getting salt in the wounds. 
New data from PitchBook finds more than 3,200 private venture-backed tech startups have gone out of business this year. These firms collectively raised more than $27 billion in capital. Case in point, just today, electric scooter vehicle company Bird filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. The once high-flying startup went public in 2021. It used to have a valuation of $2.5 billion. Let's bring in a guy who knows a little something about investing in startups. RSE Ventures co-founder, CEO, and former Miami Dolphins executive Matt Higgins. Matt, good to see you. Do you have to be a Goliath to make it in tech? No, but you have to have a viable business model. I think what, what we're seeing now is a reckoning that was delayed. There were these crazy valuations that were valuing companies in 2019, 2020 based on multiples of top line, and that was masking whether or not they were viable. And then all of the SPAC craze you know, fed the boom and they all went public, and now we're seeing it all play out. There was also this massive hunt for yields at a time when cash was cheap and, and you just weren't getting a lot of return on the investment. So people were willing to take more risks in order to get anything to find a return. You had an experience with InsureTech. What was your experience like and what kind of headwinds did you hit? Yeah, I uh, I had my own SPAC, uh, or like everyone else, in, uh, in uh, 2021. And because I teach direct-to-consumer at Harvard Business School, I identified a great company. It's called Kin DTC Insurance. We were going to take it public. And unfortunately, the uh, the competitive set were all bid up to crazy valuations. The other company, Hippo, at the time was $4 billion valuation. Now it's at down 95%. And we ultimately had to pull the uh, the uh, the merger. Uh, company's still doing great today, but again, all I saw all these companies firsthand that had no business being public. Not saying that about Hippo, but other ones. And now you've had 23 D SPACs have gone bankrupt or uh, dissolved. And in fact, we have even more recent bankruptcies, like Smile Direct this week, WeWork this quarter, all of AI, Convoy, Disco. Is there hope for tech startups? What is it that they have to? They have to do more due diligence. They've got to have better slide decks. How do you convince investors when you see the slate here and how much failure there has been that there's still opportunity? I mean, not to be gloom and doom, but the reckoning is just beginning. Uh, at the end of the day, there's a whole bunch of private companies who uh, can't raise beyond a Series B, Series C. No VC wants to pay for someone else's uh, previous mistake. And that hasn't really washed through the system. Uh, this is just the beginning. We're just seeing the public company fall out. The private uh, sector carnage is going to be that much worse in 2024. So I think all these have to be washed out of the system. The hope is build a viable business where you actually have a path to profitability within the uh, foreseeable future, and that you're not sense, uh, essentially hoping there's a greater fool out there who's going to give you a higher valuation. According to Crunchbase, 25% of U.S. startup dollars are now, now going toward AI. Is AI heading for a trajectory similar to these more broadly tech startups that we've seen? I think it is. If you want to analogize to the direct-to-consumer boom, uh, they were all being funded on growth, right? And growth at all costs. So VCs, you know, created the problem. Like Billy Joel, we didn't start the fire. They did start the fire. <laughs> but now, now with uh, AI, you have all these VCs that are chasing all these deals. How is it possible to figure out in 2023 what's going to be commoditized or going to be absorbed by Microsoft as a feature or or uh, or Meta? So I do think a lot of money is chasing and creating the same problem. A lot of people are going to lose a ton of money, but will they ever learn? The answer is no.
Well, then what's the point of teaching them, whether Harvard or elsewhere? Matt Higgins. You got to keep trying. Home <laughs> <laughs> Springs Eternal. That's, what we, that's true. That's a whole new verse for We Didn't Start the Fire. Matt Higgins, great to see you. Quick programming note here. Tomorrow night, Brian will talk with Landry CEO and Houston Rockets owner Tillman Fertitta. You don't want to miss that. That's always a great conversation. Coming up, looting life savings in a near blink. How some criminals managed to run rampant through stolen iPhones. This is a musty report. Next. There has been a nationwide uptick in iPhone thefts, so much so that Apple is rolling out a new security update to combat it. But how do thieves do it? The Wall Street Journal's Joanna Stern has been on this story from the start. She went to a Minnesota correctional facility and sat down with Aaron Johnson, a convicted iPhone thief, to crack the case. Probably get like five to 10 phones a night. So 10, 20, 30, 30 phones from Friday to Sunday. It's kind of like a like a bank robbery. You gotta be quick. How fast were you changing Apple ID passwords? Faster than you could say, super califragilistic, ashvialidocious. Five, ten seconds. Joanna Stern joins me now. So what you found was that the big deal was not just the stolen phone, but what the thief was able to access by having that phone. That's right. And the real key is the iPhone passcode. And this is a story I've been following with my colleague for most of the year now. And we had started hearing from victims who were having their phones stolen and then realizing a few hours later, the phone wasn't just the only thing that was taken. Thousands of dollars were taken from their bank account and they couldn't get into their Apple accounts anymore. And we started to look into this. We realized the thieves were getting something more than just the stolen phone. And that was the passcode. As you heard Aaron there, he was stealing phones, but he was also stealing passcodes. He was going up to people in bars, looking over their shoulders to get their iPhone passcodes, tricking them to give it to them. Then he'd steal the phone, use that passcode to then get into a host of apps on the phone, including bank accounts. Doesn't facial recognition solve that? Yes, it does. But Aaron was getting very tricky and asking for the passcode. He was getting the phones from people and saying, hey, I want to put some information into your phone. I want to give you my phone number. I want to add you on Snapchat. So he'd say, oh, yeah, let me just give me, can you give me the phone for a second? He'd get it and say, oh, your phone is locked. What's your passcode? And sometimes we also know that our, pass, our, our face ID or fingerprint can fail and we put in our passcodes. And another way he was doing this was actually filming people from afar putting in their passcodes. Okay, so so people weren't being careful guarding their passcodes in the first place or being too trusting. What about once he was on? Like, how was he? I don't know. When I do anything on my phone, I feel like I get an alert that says somebody's trying to do this. Did you allow this? Press that. It's two factor authentication. Don't we all do that? Yes, but this was the kind of mastermind of this this scheme. These people couldn't get back into their Apple accounts. So they couldn't quickly go to their computers at home and say, go find my iPhone, shut down that iPhone remotely. One of the first things he was doing, and then when you hear him talk about how fast he was doing this, he's using that iPhone passcode to change the, app, the Apple ID password. And that means locking people out of their Apple accounts, which gives them the control when they go back to their computers or a different phone to kind of let them back in. We, we were just showing your recommendations here, like adding a distinct password onto your banking apps or your cash apps or things like that. 
Number four here is really attention getting. Delete notes or photos with personal information. Did you find that a lot of iPhone customers are keeping that, that, those important passwords in notes? I, I, I hoped it wouldn't be true, but one of the most uh, crazy things that Johnson told me in the interview was that if he couldn't get the passwords, if the passwords weren't saved on the phone inside the apps in Apple's iCloud keychain password manager, he'd quickly go to the notes. And he said everything was in the notes or the photos app. I mean, think about it. On your phone right now, do you think you probably have some photos of your license I or your social you security I number? I wouldn't tell you I would not tell you on global television where I keep my passwords. I did not mean just you. I meant everyone. I meant everyone. But but you you probably do, right, viewers? You probably might have one of those photos in your Photos app. So I would go through right now, search for it, and delete it. It's a and the same with the Notes app. There are great third-party password managers that could keep it all safe. Joanna, this is a great story and was really well-reported. I want to ask you about another Apple story. It was an update on that Apple Watch sales ban. According to the International Trade Commission filing, Apple just lost a bid to delay an impending import ban of its watches. It's a response to a, a patent battle regarding the technology behind the watch's blood oxygen sensor. Earlier this week, Apple announced it would halt sales of the Apple Watch Series 9 and the Apple Watch Ultra 2. What's your take? My take is, is that Apple's running out of a couple of options here. It looks like you know, there, there's a few things left that could happen. Biden, Biden could veto this. Not, not sure that's going to happen. Doesn't look likely. So it looks likely that Apple's either going to have to do a software or a hardware fix here. But jury's out on when that's going to happen or if that will happen. Joanna Stern, thank you for the great reporting and sharing it with us. Okay. Quicker than the ticker. All the best of the rest of the headlines. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. Brand new images of lava spewing from a volcano in Iceland. The eruption started Monday and opened a two and a half mile fissure. The lava is flowing away from the closest town. Sirius XM sued by the New York State Attorney General's office, accusing the company of trapping customers in subscriptions. Letitia James says Sirius's difficult cancellation process is illegal. Good news from the EPA. New 2022 vehicle models reached record high fuel economy. Emission levels dropped to record low levels. Speaking of cars, Tesla drivers are involved in more crashes than any other vehicle brand, according to a lending tree analysis. The report says Tesla drivers had roughly 23 accidents per 1,000 drivers. Ram and Subaru in second and third place. The study did not analyze the reasons behind those crashes. An orange tabby cat just got its big debut in space. A video of taters uploaded before launch was beamed back to NASA from deep space nearly 10 million miles away with laser technology, and it's the first time NASA's done this. And it took them barely 40 seconds longer than quicker than the ticker. Coming up, call it an early Christmas miracle. Prices coming down in one of the last places you might suspect. Stay with us. Welcome back to Last Call. The holidays might be expensive, but inflation is easing off of your grocery list. According to Northeast supermarket chain Stu Leonard's, prices at the stores have risen just 1% in the past year. Compare that to 6% between 2021 and 2022. 
CPI data shows a similar trend nationally. This year's prices increased a little less than 3% compared to nearly 11% the previous year. So which items are seeing the most relief and which still costs a lot? Let's bring in Stu Leonard, CEO and President Hi. Stu Leonard Jr. It's nice to see you, although you come to us from the grocery store, but you don't bring your lovely wares here for us to partake. That's okay. Hey, wait, I, I have some cookies for you, Contessa, right here. You oh, know, I you love want that. Some, you know, we'll get some strawberries. You can have some nice strawberries right here. How we much have plenty does, of food. How much does it cost, the strawberries and the cookies? What am I going to pay well, you know, if I want that for my Christmas table? Well, you know what? These have held pretty steady right now, um, strawberries right now. And I don't think the price has changed that much, you know, over the years. Um, and you're seeing some things that have gone up and some things that aren't. And, you know, we ride the supply and demand curve here. You know, our company uh, is mostly fresh. You know, we're like 80% fresh products at the store. So consumer, a lot of these consumer goods have, have gone up quite a bit, ketchup and things like that. But you're seeing most of the food prices stabilize right now. And prices are roughly about the same as last year, we're noticing. Except for meat. I mean, when I'm looking at filet mignon, right. I see that the, those prices have increased more year over yeah. year. Why is that? Well, you know what? I talk to our ranchers. We get all our beef from the Midwest. It's, it's great, great product. And they, what they've done is, is really herd sizes. You know, there was a drought out there during the summer. Um, a lot of the ranchers cut down on the, the cattle sizes. So uh, you're seeing that now where there's just a little bit of a, a shortage of supply on the market. And that has driven meat prices up. But we expect them to come down over the next couple of months. I want to ask you about uh, competition, not just from other supermarket chains, but from these meal prep companies like Blue Apron or HelloFresh. I know that you have started a, a similar offering, right? Dinners for eight. How important is that right. for you to fend off the competition? Well, you know, well, we don't look at it so much as a competition. It's just what our customers like. And so what we even did for Thanksgiving was we had a turkey. You could get a pie in there. You had rolls. You had side dishes. It was your cranberry sauce gravy. It was your complete dinner for eight. It was $200. So you could just buy that, and, and it was $25 a head for your guests at, at Thanksgiving for everything except for the wine. <laughs> and, and the wine could cost you depending on what your taste is. Stu, it's great of you to join us. Thank you so yeah. much for sharing a little bit about your um, amazing store there. Hey, I'm hey, just wondering. I, I saw, go ahead. I, I, I saw you have a French background here. My son-in-law is from France. And so there's a lot of French going on around, uh, around our house. But I guess I have to say bonsoir to you. Oh, bonsoir, merci. And maybe <laughs> um, manger in good health. Okay. Happy holidays. Thank you so much. Happy and holidays. Bon <laughs> Bonne année. Joyeux okay. Noël. I could keep going, but I'll, I'll, I'll stop for those of us who don't actually speak Happy French. Holiday. Miracle on 34th Street, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and Home Alone, all must-watch movies during the holidays. 77 years ago today, another Christmas classic hit the big screen. Merry Christmas, George! It's a 
a Wonderful Life originally bombed at the box office. It only banked less than $4 million. Eventually, though, of course, became a Christmas classic through TV reruns during the holidays, and now you can stream it as well. Thank you for watching Last Call. And remember, every time a bell rings, Brian's back tomorrow. He'll be joined by Landry CEO and Houston Rockets owner Tillman Fertitta. You don't want to miss that one. Shark Tank is next.